Okay, we, um, how many of you were here last Sunday? Okay, good. What, what an incredible time with Mr. Al Eiton, who uh, I'd never heard speak before. And Al introduced us to this very small book in the Bible called Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk's interesting. He's a minor prophet, which is sort of a bummer to be relegated to be a minor prophet. That's only because it's just three small chapters compared to the behemoths of Isaiah or Jeremiah with their 60-plus chapters. But Habakkuk, the most unique thing about him is that there are no messages to the people. The entire three chapters are a dialogue between he and God. Now, the reason there's no messages is because the messages are too late. The day of judgment is coming, and there's no more need for any cause for national repentance. There has been repeated warnings and repeated calls, and God is going to correct and to punish His own people, Israel. And Habakkuk has, is so grieved and so upset that uh, you know, at first of the, of the condition of his own people, but then he's even more put off. He's even more upset when God tells him he's going to use the Chaldeans. This is the second Babylonian empire. He's going to use the Chaldeans in order to bring that correction to the nation of Israel. And they're basically breathing on the border. I mean, it is imminent. Invasion is imminent. So you can imagine the kind of tension and the crisis that's facing the nation with invasion being imminent. And these were not, um, the uh, Chaldeans didn't subscribe to the uh, Geneva War Convention. They, they didn't follow those. They were sadistic. They were brutal. They were fierce. They were legendary and epic in the awful things that they would do. They were indeed the Nazis of the previous century and the ISIS of our century. And so when God communicates to Habakkuk that he's going to use these people far more wicked than they to bring correction, he's beside himself. He, he can't understand. God, how could you do that? How could you tolerate this? And, um, and it brings enormous doubt into his life regarding who God is and the character and the goodness of God. Go ahead if you would, Noel. I just want to just put up, go, go to all four of these points. And this gives you the basic timeline of where we were last week moving into this week. And we're going to look at chapter 2 here, verse 1, in a moment. But during sometime between the second and third chapter, some are in it, this invasion takes place. And so Habakkuk is living right in the middle of this, and he is having enormous doubts about the goodness and the character of the God that he had come to love and the God that he'd come to know. And what does he do with those doubts? What do you do with your doubts? What do you do with yours? You know, when you see, for example, maybe doubts flood into your life when you see a little boy uh, who had drowned alone on a Turkish beach. That was a very recent image. Horrible image. uh, The result of a family trying to escape war-torn Syria. Or maybe your doubts emerge from your own experiences like me 
some, some years of unanswered prayer and feeling like there's silence are, are ministry ventures that were risked and failed. God, where were you? I thought you wanted me to move forward with this. Maybe you've met that silence as well. Maybe in your unanswered prayers, perhaps there was moments where it seemed like God was working and God was moving and God was answering the prayer only to have it fall apart again. And all of what you thought was doing coming to nothing, making your bitterness even more severe, your disappointment even more severe. Where do doubts bubble up in your life? Well, the way we see Habakkuk relating to these doubts will give us some help as well when we struggle with them ourselves. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And if, if you're following, in our Bibles, it's page 785. Verse 1 says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk received no answer from God. How can you tolerate such evil? But he's waiting. He, he, he's not literally on a watchtower. Figuratively speaking, a watchtower, that tower where you would climb up to the top to be able to see out into the landscape, to watch for enemies, um, so you could prepare the city below. He uses this as a picture to describe how he is relating to God in the moments of grief, in the moments of fear, in the moments of tremendous doubt. There's four things he points to, each of those four things represented by a phrase in that verse. He's going to talk about remaining obedient. He's going to talk about receiving spiritual insight. He's going to talk about hopeful expectation of prayers being answered. And he's also going to be open to correction. Now, let's go through all four of those things, beginning with this first phrase, I will take my stand at my watch post. Through the the years I have been in pastoral ministry, I have counseled a lot of people who are struggling with depression. And one thing I've noticed about when people struggle with depression is they often make poor decisions that actually compound and make their situation worse. And what they do is they ignore or they stop giving themselves to certain simple self-disciplines. And we call them disciplines because in the moment they don't feel like doing them. Simple things like eating right exercising, getting the right amount of sleep. All of those things help a person to deal with depression. Well, like that, when we have tremendous doubts, we tend to do the same thing with respect to disengaging from God. The very spiritual disciplines that we need, and we call them disciplines because in the moment we don't feel like doing them, the very disciplines that will help us stay connected to God, things like reading the Bible or praying, talking to God, or attending church, or if you go to a small group, attending your small group. When people have tremendous doubts, they 
tend to back off and to stop engaging in the very disciplines that will help them get through that spiritual desert. This is not the route Habakkuk takes. Like a century keeping vigilant watch, so Habakkuk stations himself peering into the night looking for any sign of movement that God is active and that God is answering his prayer. If you are on guard duty, it doesn't matter how you feel. If you're on guard duty, it doesn't matter if you're sleeping. It doesn't matter how bad things get. You must remain firm. He's struggling enormously with God. You see that in his passionate appeals in the previous chapter. But he will not leave his post. He will not leave his post. You see, waiting on God does not mean inactivity or the suspension of spiritual disciplines, but actually leaning more deeply into them. There's a book called Forged by Fire that I thought was interesting. And the author wrote this about this waiting process, likening it to forging a strong metal. He says, in smelting and forging, the cooling process is as important as the heating. Metallurgists have discovered that changes occur in the metal itself during the cool-down period. If the cool-down is too fast, it can cause microscopic cracks that will inevitably lead to fatigue, and we're talking a large building, disaster. To ensure that the cooling process aids in strengthening, the metal is is typically placed in a quenching bath. Then when the right temperature is reached, it's dropped into a constant temperature bath until it attains uniform temperature throughout. Next, it's allowed to cool slowly in the air until it reaches normal room temperature. The weighting is essential to ensure the metal's structural integrity. In other words, the strength throughout is uniform. Therefore, it can accomplish its end. We, too, go through cool-down periods. Waiting is an inescapable part of that process of cooling down. Blaming God, blaming others, flailing, railing at society will only prevent us from seeing what God has decided to do in us and what he's trying to say. I recently met with a, uh, a young guy and uh, I'd been counseling him and working with him over a period of time and, and he came to this realization. He went through a particular season of his life where, like Habakkuk, he was dealing with tremendous doubts and waiting on God, listening to God, giving himself to listening prayer. And what he discovered was that, really, for the problems that he was encountering and blaming his wife and blaming God and blaming others, through this introspection and time of reflection, he realized he, he never really saw his role in all of this. It was always someone else's issue. He said of his marriage that before I went through this process, I would have put the primary blame for our faltering on her. 
Now I realize it's much more about me. You know, as long as he maintained the vantage point of blaming others, he could not see what God was trying to see and do in his life. He had no power to change. And in his own words, he said that this last year has been the most significant of his spiritual journey. And he has experienced greater freedom and loves Jesus more than he ever has. This is the power of waiting. And it bleeds, secondly, or it bleeds perfectly into our next point. Look at the second phrase in Habakkuk. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. He stationed himself on the tower in order to get spiritual insight. One, as I said, gets on a tower to see what is coming. But in doing so, Habakkuk leaves the crowds below so he can hear God's voice. He crawls up from the valley, which is very limited in its vision, in order that he can see with greater perceptiveness. In the watchtower, he can see the entire landscape before him, waiting doesn't change the landscape, but it changes the way that he perceives it and apprehends it. Seeing with a spiritual lens changes everything, doesn't it? You talk about different perspectives. A really interesting illustration of this is Einstein's theory of relativity and a different perspective on light from the way we see it and the way light truly is. Einstein showed us that to a normal human being, most of us, light is seen as something that is moving and is bound by time and bound by distance. But from light's perspective, or we could argue from God's perspective, light is everywhere instantly and is not bound by time are by distance, two different perspectives based on your vantage point. So in Colossians chapter 1, Paul begins his prayers for those believers by praying for their spiritual wisdom and insight. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Intimate knowledge of God and his words. That's the key. That's the key. You know, in 2 Kings chapter 6, an army from the nation of Aram was sent to kill the Jewish prophet Elisha. Elisha kept messing up their plans, and they figured it out. And so they sent an entire army to kill one person. And so that army comes and is surrounding them. And Elisha's servant, who's not quite as spiritually in tune, wakes up and sees it. And so he runs to his master, Elisha, and wakes him up and says, we are surrounded by this terrible army, this big army. Elisha was unmoved and says to him, don't be afraid, there are far more with us. So the servant looks around and he looks at Elisha and says, what were you drinking last night? I count one, two, that's me and you. That's not a majority here. That's a minority by several hundred at least. It was mystifying. 
Elisha prayed in verse 6, O Lord, open up his eyes. Not his physical eyes. His physical eyes are wide open. Open up his eyes and let him see. And God did. And the servant saw a mountainside full of horses and chariots of fire all around them. Elisha saw with spiritual insight, and it changed everything. When Habakkuk talks about the picture of a watchtower, this is part of what he's getting after. Look at the third point. Hopeful expectation. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. We've already seen Habakkuk has done several things in order to hear God speak and to to draw close and draw near to the heart of God. He removes himself from the crowds. He realizes that he's unable to figure it out. And so in waiting, in waiting, he leaves it with God. In waiting, we leave our problems with God. That's number one. But secondly... When we leave our problems and our doubts with God, we don't forget them entirely. Though God has been silent, Habakkuk looks out, waiting, expecting an answer. You know, I want to share just a brief personal example from this in my own life. I was on vacation last week. I was on vacation um, physically, but it took me a couple of days to get on vacation emotionally and mentally. Anybody relate to that? It took me a couple of days to unwind from various things. What was going on is, when I left my work, I had about three or four different perplex situations that require fine-tuned judgments. You know, we had judges in our culture because some decisions are not easily made. Some decisions are not clear. If every decision was easy to make, if every judgment was easy to make, we'd have no need for judges. But every decision is not. And so I had these complex situations that required fine-tuned judgments. And I I found that even though I wasn't physically at work, I was still trying to solve these problems and figure them out and to ensure a safe outcome. And uh, I, I knew I needed to try to leave this. And so one particular morning, I was reading the Scriptures, and, um, and I wasn't thinking about these issues, just reading the Scriptures, and was really struck by some things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, later on that day, I kind of got back into my figure-out-these-problems mode, and as I was in that mode, these same Scriptures came ricocheting back into my consciousness. It was like a flash from heaven. And I realized, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me, that the very things I had read addressed the emotional burdens that I was carrying. Now, God didn't say to me, here's the outcome or here's the decision to make. But rather what He said, very specifically through these Scriptures, is that I will and can give you and give the church capacity and power and wisdom to make the right judgments and fine-tuned judgments. I had the power and the capacity to do that. And from that point on, for the rest of the week, I was able to 
leave those issues behind, mentally, emotionally, and relationally. It's really powerful. So one, we stop trying to reason things out on our own. Two, we don't, we, we, we don't, we leave it with God. We don't forget it entirely. We continue to look and expect God to work. And then finally, because Habakkuk continues to stand firm in his watch post, we infer from that that we must persevere in our expectations. We must not easily give up. Some of us too easily give up. But a hopeful expectation perseveres until God answers. Now the fourth thing. A little subtle on this one. Let me take a few moments to break this one down. And that is the openness to correction. Because look at this last phrase here in verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Does that strike you as confusing? Or is it just me? That strikes me as confusing. Because what I expected the Scriptures to say was, and what he will answer concerning my complaint. But rather, it says what I will answer concerning my complaint. Well, I think we're helped here by what one scholar wrote on this. He says this word complaint, it infers two different things. One, it infers an argument by which one seeks to establish the right, the just, what is right. So we argue for what we believe is right or just. But secondly, it also implies a rebuke or a correction through which the right is restored. Ah, now I think that might give us a clue as to what Habakkuk is getting after here. I believe what he's saying is that Habakkuk wants God to make the situation right, which appears in his mind to not have these evil Chaldeans come down and be a part of this judgment process on the people of God. But Habakkuk is willing to say, maybe my assumptions are not correct. Maybe what feels right, maybe my intuition on this matter is not correct. He is open to being shaped and corrected by God. I think that's what he is saying here. He has enormous doubts about what God is doing, but he has taken his questions about God to God. And then he allows God to inform and he allows God to shape the answers. In every way, we see in Habakkuk a mature determination. An answer will come. An answer will come. And we'll see that answer here in just a moment. We'll see that answer. But for the time being, he must hold on. He must hold on to Christ. I like what um, um, I like what one person said in relation to this. He's an Oxford philosopher, and his name is Basil Mitchell. And he tried to answer this question: Is it rational to trust in God? This was a backus question: Is it rational to trust in God? even when we do not fully understand what he is doing. Is that rational? Because because when we talk about things like this and letting go when we don't understand, 
We can hear the accusations, don't we? They might come from friends or from enemies, but we can hear and feel the accusations. You're naive. You're, you're too childlike. You've got your head buried in the sand. You're not dealing with the facts and with realities. When you say that there's some things we simply can't figure out, there's some things that remain a mystery to us. We hear the accusation. You're naive. You're childlike. Well, this philosopher from Oxford, Basil Mitchell, tries to answer this question in a story form. I found it quite interesting. He calls it the parable of the resistance fighter. This is what he says. Imagine you are in German-occupied France in World War II, and you want to join the resistance movement. One evening in a local bar, a stranger comes up to you and introduces himself as the leader of the local resistance. He spends the evening with you, explaining the general requirements of your duties, giving you a chance to assess his trustworthiness, and offering you a chance to go no further. But his warning is stern. If you join, your life will be at risk. This will be the only face-to-face meeting that you have. After this, you will receive orders, and you will have to follow them without question, often completely in the dark as to the whys and wherefores of the operation, and always with terrifying fear that your trust may be betrayed. Is such trust reasonable? Wow. Is such trust reasonable? Sometimes what the resistance leader is doing is obvious. He's helping members of the resistance. Thank heavens he's on our side, you say. Sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes he's in Gestapo uniform, arresting members of the resistance, unknown to you and unknown to you, releasing them out of sight to help escape the Nazis. But you always must trust and follow the orders without question, despite all appearances and no matter what happens. The resistance leader knows best, you say. Only after the war will the secrets be opened, the codes revealed, the true comrades vindicated, the real traitors exposed, and sense made of the apparent contradictions only after the war. Christian author Oz Guinness adds to this parable, the parable of the resistance leader is an apt picture of the dilemmas of faith in a fallen world. Evil is not a problem because God is too small, though doing his best, but because God is so great, God is so great that we cannot be expected to know all that he is doing. The key is assessing the trustworthiness of the resistance leader. (laughs) The same with us. The key is assessing the trustworthiness of our resistance leader, Christ himself. Do we have good reasons to trust him? Okay, so moving towards closing here, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. See, the answer now does come. After a season of silence, after a season of waiting, the answer comes. And in verse 2, Habakkuk says, write down this vision and 
because a herald, a communicator, is going to run with it. Write this vision down. And then in verse 3, he says to Habakkuk, this vision will take place. It'll linger. You're going to feel like it's not going to happen. But this vision that I'm giving to you right now is going to take place. You can bank on it. And then in verse 5, he describes the greed and the ambition and the lust of the Chaldeans and how awful they are. And that's a pretext for what happens from verses 6 through 20. And in verses 6 through 20 is what scholars call a song, actually. It's called a taunt song. (laughs) Sounds like something you might watch today on an NFL football game. It may not be music, but it's a taunt. And it's the kind of a taunt akin to what might be sung or the way that you might feel when a well-known, notorious bully has finally met his match and has been taken down. You might be tempted to sing a song over that. And that's what takes place in verses 6 through 20. The bully is the Chaldeans, and this vision predicts and prophesies their end. The stanzas of the song are sectioned off by the word woe, and each woe characterizes another level of corruption that is so taken over the souls of these individuals, these Chaldeans. They are hungry for self-glory, but in verse 16, God says, their glory will be turned to shame. And in verse 14, God promises Habakkuk that Chaldean flags will not fly all over the world as they envision. That's what they envision. In the same way of Nazi Germany or the Soviet world at one point, in the same way that they envision their flag flying all over the world, God promises Habakkuk that will not take place. As a matter of fact, and look at verse 14, here's what he says will take place. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's flag, in the end, will fly all over the world and everybody will see it and everybody will know it. That's the promise, the vision that God gives to Habakkuk in the end. It is to say that God is in control of history. It is to say that right will win out. It is to say that justice will flourish. It is to say that each will be judged Each will be judged according to their works. Romans 2, verse 6. The judgment will include the Chaldeans. And so what is God asking Habakkuk to do? He's saying, Habakkuk, strap on your seatbelt and hold on to your wheels of... and hold on as the wheels of history make a massive, massive turn. This was Habakkuk's answer from his waiting. And Habakkuk allowed God to be God. And he allowed God to shape his understanding. Habakkuk was the piece of pottery being molded, not the other way around. Verse 4 sums up, then, the ingredient that Habakkuk needed to make sense of the world and what we need today to make sense of the world. And the last phrase in verse 4, the righteous man shall live By how? How will he gain life? How will he gain life in this crazy world? He will gain his life, she will gain her life through faith. Through faith. 
Now, there's a very small seed planted here, isn't there? A very small seed. It's unclear. It's faint. But still, it's here. And even though the life of Christ is still hundreds of years into the future, we see Christ here in Habakkuk emerging onto the, onto the canvas. Though it's just still so small. It's a small dab of color on the canvas. The judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming. Most immediately in the Chaldean invasion of Judah, but finally, ultimately, finally, ultimately, for all at the end of history. And what will it bring? Will it bring life or will it bring death? You see, God created the world for His glory and He gave us gifts and abilities to use to that end. But on that day, on that day of the end, it will be so unspeakably clear of how terribly naive it was for people to believe that God would never call them to account. God entrusted us gifts for His glory to bear His image. And we are thieves using those gifts for our own gain and our own self-glory. We're naive if we think that God would never call us into account for how little we think of Him, the One who is our Creator. I like the way that John Piper wrote this. This is his insight. And in his thoughts on Habakkuk, he concludes by saying, I urge you to, I urge you to ask yourself, reader or listener this morning, would I gain my life before a holy God if I die tonight? Am I ready to take my stand in the divine courtroom and hear the judge pass an eternal sentence? On me? There will only be two verdicts on that day. And one of the other of them will be passed on every person. Condemned are justified. Hell are heaven. Eternal death are eternal life. If you want to know how to gain your life, listen to Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous man shall live by his faith. You see, Habakkuk knew that everybody in Judah was a sinner. He knew the holiness of God prevented God from just ignoring sins, acting like injustice wasn't there, ignoring cries of injustice. He knew that God couldn't, wouldn't be that or do that. And so he taught us that the only thing that can save us is what? Is faith. In chapter 3, 2, he says it so, so pithily, so succinctly. He says, in your wrath, Lord, remember mercy. Now Habakkuk couldn't see how God could do all this. How could God do it? How could God preserve his justice and yet show merciful forgiveness to sinners But here God reveals that even in seed form, the righteous shall gain their lives in the judgment by faith. He meant that for those who are that those who are right with God in spite of their sinfulness 
are those who trust God for His mercy. They throw themselves at Him, believing in His mercy. I hope that you've done that. I hope that you've done that. You know, the song that we sang, the second song we sang, creates a part of that portal. Christ, come and be the center of my life. If that's your desire this morning, whether you've never expressed a prayer like that or or maybe you're being renewed this morning, but we begin to enter into what God wants for us, to enter into the kingdom of God, to leave the kingdom of this world and to enter into the kingdom of God, to change and to repent from a certain way of seeing life through natural means, with self at the center, and to enter into the kingdom of God where Christ is at the center. And to say, Christ, be the center of my life. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Uh, A prayer expressing a conviction, a decision, a conscious choice. This is what it means to enter into the kingdom of God like a little child. How could God do it? How could God do it? How could He preserve His justice but still show mercy to sinners? Habakkuk didn't understand it, but hundreds of years later, the life of Christ would bring it all into a crystal-like focus. What was shadowy became real and concrete in Christ. His death allowed God to continue to be just and yet to show mercy. To finish this morning, let me read to you these four verses where Paul goes into great detail about the operation of faith and who it is we place our faith in. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous, complete, perfect before God. How did He do this? He did it through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty, the condemnation of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice, the worthy sacrifice for our sin. People were made right with God. How? When they believe, when they cling to, when they rely on. They begin to follow Jesus. When they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life through the shedding of His blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who had sinned in times past. For He was looking ahead and including them in what He would do in this present time. God did did this to demonstrate His righteousness. God's righteousness has never and will never be compromised. His justice will never be compromised. It was fulfilled in the person of Christ at His death. For He Himself is fair and just, and He declares, and what God declares, let no man undo. God is not a a, 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 a false salesperson. 
He doesn't make false promises. What God declares, He declares sinners to be pure, to be right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. That is what Habakkuk looked forward to and what we look back to. And it's what we look back to the goodness of Christ, the goodness of God that helps us deal with the apparent contradictions when it seems like God is not good in our lives. This is the basis of his goodness. Pray with me. Father, with every need that is out there this morning and every doubt and disappointment and every hurt. Father, I pray that you would bring us to a place this morning where we would be able to more clearly and freely stop blaming you, stop blaming our spouse, stop blaming our parents, stop blaming society, stop flailing, Stop trying to figure it out for ourselves. Solve our own dilemmas. Father, bring us to a place like children where we wait and we look out and we see. Help us in that place to remain obedient. Help us empower us to have spiritual insight. Help us to be open to correction. Help us to have hope and expectation that you'll come through for us. You might delay. We might not see it. Father, we remember that some of the great saints died before their promises were realized and fulfilled, but you still did it. Bring us to that place of sweet contentment as we let go, God, and wait and trust. Thank you for the opportunity now, Father, to respond to you and to your word. We want to give of our resources, but we want to give our hearts and ourselves and our lives afresh to you. Christ, be the center. Be the center of our lives. We entrust our lives, these resources, these songs, these prayers, might you be pleased and take delight in them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.